Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us to listen to this message. Whoever you are and wherever you're listening from, we trust that you'll be equipped, envisioned and encouraged as you listen today. you please turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to talk about a great unveiling, how the veil was torn, and what does that actually mean for us? Because it could otherwise just be quite a mysterious concept, but it is so powerful and impacting on our life right now. So in Hebrews 10 and verse 19 to 22, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus... By a new and life-living way, he has opened for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. It's much of what God has been saying to us this morning already, isn't it? But particularly in verse 20, it says that he has opened a new and living way through the veil, that is, his flesh. I thought that was quite an interesting phrase. Through the veil, that is, his flesh. And so I thought, well, what does that mean for us? That, what does that actually mean for us and, and for our lives today? Now, that word flesh, if you were here last week, you would have heard Richard refer to it. It's this word sarks, S-A-R-X. And it means the actual physical flesh, but it also means the sensuous nature of man, with cravings which incite to sin. These are just some some definitions. The sensuous nature of man with cravings which incite to sin. The physical nature of man as subject to suffering. And the earthly nature of man apart from divine influence and opposed to God. So it's not the cheeriest thing in the world. But that's, that's what this word flesh means. And that is what Jesus has dealt with on the cross. Praise God. So I just wanted to unpack what that means a bit for us. Now, you don't need to turn here, but in Hebrews 10, verse 5, it says, Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, this is Jesus, You did not want sacrifice and offerings, but you prepared a body for me. So God says to Jesus, Jesus, what is needed, it's not more sacrifices and offerings. It's not an old covenant system of law. What we need to deal with is this flesh, it's this sarks, it's this sensuous nature of man. And Jesus says, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go in bodily form, I'll, I'll go in the flesh. And we read that, don't we, in John 1.14, it says, the word became flesh, the word became sarks. The word, that is Jesus, became the sensuous nature of man prone to sin The word that is Jesus became the physical nature of man, subject to suffering. And the word that is Jesus became the earthly nature of man that is prone to sin, opposed to God, and apart from divine influence. That's who Jesus became for us. And God sent him in that way to make him relatable to us, to to send him as an example for us, because we are flesh, aren't we? And I always understood that, or at least I thought I did, that Jesus was an example for us, but I really didn't understand that at all until I considered the cross recently, 
and considered the fact that at the moment that Christ defeated the flesh, he was completely and entirely relatable to absolutely everyone. Completely entirely relatable to absolutely everyone. The moment I'm talking about when Christ defeats the flesh, we can find somewhere between Matthew 27, 46, and 50. So why don't we turn there, Matthew 27, around 46-ish. In fact, we'll go from 45... So Matthew 27, verse 45, says, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. At about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Stop there. Considering all that has led up to this point here, I think what we can say is that at this point, there's nothing more of the flesh that Jesus could experience. Every influence of the flesh has all come to this moment, and Jesus has taken it all on. And as we'll see, he's about to defeat it, but let's not jump the gun. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. What I mean by that is, well, the first part of what we said about the flesh is that it's this sensuous nature of man, and it incites to sin. But think about this. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, he bore our sins on the tree. Even more than that, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, Christ who knew no sin became sin. And Hebrews 4, 15 says that he was tested and tempted in every single way and he didn't sin. But now we see him on the cross having taken on all sin, bearing our sins on the tree, becoming sin, whatever that means. Here's Jesus. And what that means for us is that there is no sin that I've ever committed that Christ can't relate to. When we think about the fact that, again, I've no idea what this means, but it says that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world which is kind of outside of time. The lamb was slain, and all sin committed for all time. Jesus is bearing that on the tree. There is nothing we have done. There's nothing we will do. There's nothing we might find ourselves doing. No habits, no addiction, no thing that is going on right now that Jesus hasn't borne for us on the tree, that he cannot relate to. He became sin. That second part of the flesh we talked about was the physical nature as subject to suffering. And Isaiah 53, 4 says, He himself bore our sicknesses. He bore all of our sin, and he bore all of our sicknesses. There is no sickness that you may be experiencing. There is no ailment or illness There's no physical or mental condition 
that you may find yourself with or know friends and family with that Jesus cannot relate to. We can sometimes think, well, you know, this depression, this anxiety, Jesus doesn't know what that's like. And when I get all these altar calls to say, come forward because Jesus has done this for you and he'll set you through, he, does, he doesn't. He does. Jesus bore all our sicknesses on the tree. He bore every single one, mental, physical, emotional. There's nothing, no sickness, no disease that Jesus cannot relate to. And then we've got this earthly nature of man, which is opposed to God and apart from divine influence. And we've just read in Matthew 27, 45 and 46, that there was complete darkness. And Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Completely alone. Again, this is a a difficult concept, but abandoned by God, forsaken by him. There is no abandonment that you may feel. There is no area of darkness that you may be going through. There is no thing that you find to be an opposition that Jesus Christ cannot relate to. He has done it all. His work is complete. Sin, sickness, and suffering, and darkness, and, and being alone, Jesus has done it all. He can relate to it. He knows how we feel. And so he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's something very interesting about that cry, that my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you turn to Hebrews 5, we'll have a little look at why that's interesting. When we read our Bibles, we come across some verses and then we get a, a cross-reference to tell us which verse it relates to or, or how there's a link. And that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, in Matthew 27, 46, cross-references to Hebrews 5 and verse 7. Let's have a read of that. It says, during his earthly life, or in uh, more accurate translation, it says, in the days of his flesh, sarks, in the days of his sarks, flesh, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears. That's what he's offering right now is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's an appeal with loud cry and tears. The verse after that, verse 8, says, though a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That's a very interesting verse, isn't it? He learned obedience. If you learn something, you have to deliberately choose to, to do it, don't you? Yeah. If I want to learn how to play the piano, it doesn't just come naturally. You have to put the effort in. You have to choose that you're going to learn it. You have to understand it. It's, it's an understanding and a choosing and a learning. And I think that's what we see here is that all influence of fleshiness has come to this point and Christ chooses to be obedient 
when sin might try to overwhelm him, Christ chooses to be obedient and so is overcoming rather than overwhelmed. And the next verse, verse 9 of Hebrews 5, is that he was perfected and he became the source of eternal salvation, which qualified him to become the great high priest, meaning he's gone in for us to lead the way for us and allow us to. I think it's at this point that Christ says, it is finished. We read that in John 19, verse 30, that Christ says, it is finished. What's finished? Everything to do with the flesh has come to this point. He's taken on all sin, all sickness, all suffering, any ailment or disease and any feeling of aloneness and darkness. He's taken it all on. And he's chosen to be obedient. He's chosen to not be overcome by all the influences of the flesh. He's chosen to overcome the flesh, to be obedient to God. And therefore, it is finished. It is finished. He's taken on all of human nature and decided to be obedient. His heart is your will, Lord. When he says, you didn't want sacrifices and offerings, but you have a body for me, he then goes on to say, that I might do your will, that your will be done, that it be your will, Lord. He takes on this, this heart of obedience, becoming perfected, and becoming the source of eternal salvation. And we see that amazing heart, that spirit of, of obedience, that amazing heart cry in Matthew 27 and verse 50. I'm going to read this from the Amplified, so don't, don't worry about turning there if you'd rather just listen. But it says there, Jesus cried out again with a loud, agonized voice and gave up his spirit voluntarily, Sovereignly dismissing and releasing his spirit from his body in submission to the Father's plan. That's this awesome heart of obedience. That although the flesh, as overpowering as it might seem, Christ in submission to the Father says, Your will be done, Lord. It's finished. I've done it all. Your will be done. And you know what? That would be enough for me. That would keep me going for a very long time. But that's not it. <laughs> that is not it, because at that moment, the veil is torn. Yes. At that moment, yes. the veil is torn. The very next verse, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one, says, At once, or suddenly, or at that moment, the veil of the Holy of Holies of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, and the rocks were split apart. At once... At that moment, the veil of the Holy of Holies that was 60 feet high and a few inches thick. That's a big veil. 60 feet high and a few inches thick. The veil of the Holy of Holies that separated holy God from sinful flesh. The veil of the Holy of Holies that the law, sacrifices and offerings couldn't tear. The veil of the Holy of Holies that, if I can say this reverently, was guarding God's eyes because Habakkuk 1.13 describes God's eyes as too pure to look on evil. The veil of the Holy of Holies, that is, his flesh, was torn from top to bottom. 
Amen. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. And now God, whose eyes are too pure to look on evil, sees us through the lens of the cross. Jesus has made a way for God to look at us with a smile on his face and to say, as Jesus said, it's finished. (laughs) It is finished. Flesh has been defeated. It is no more. The old has gone, the new has come. It is finished. And I can look at you, my children, with a smile on my face, pure and holy, because of the one perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who became flesh, took it all on, and in obedience defeated it for you. It is finished. Jesus has made a new and life-giving way to the holy place by overcoming the flesh and tearing the veil. And you know what? The great thing is, he's sitting down. The great thing is, Jesus is sitting down. Have a look at Hebrews 10 and verse 12. Hebrews 10, verse 12, talking about Jesus, says, But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. See, unlike those before him, those high priests who could enter the most holy place and offer sacrifices and then leave again. Jesus has gone in offering one perfect sacrifice and he sat down. You know why? It's because it's his home. It's because he sat down at his home. In his home, he sat down. He's made himself at home in the presence of God. There's no need to offer more and more sacrifices He's done it once and for all, and he's sat down on his throne in the most holy place. And that helps us to understand a couple of verses down in 10.14, which says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified or being made holy or being made perfect. It helps us understand that because... Jesus' one sacrifice has perfected forever. And the fact that he's sitting down in the presence means that we're being made holy because we're sat there with him. (laughs) We're sat there with him. We're seated with him in heavenly places. We're seated with him as he sits on his throne in the most holy place. He's perfected forever by his sacrifice those who are being made perfect by the fact that we dwell with him in the most holy place. That perfected forever, that that perfect word, it's the same word that it uses to describe Jesus, saying that after he learned obedience, he was perfected. He completed it. It was complete, it was done, it was finished. 
It's the same for us. Jesus is the perfect example as, as the great high priest was made perfect, and so too are we. We're perfect. And so we're being made more and more like him as we dwell in his presence. I thought about that and I thought, we talk about the presence of God and again it's one of those potentially mysterious concepts, mysterious words, what does it mean? And I thought, what, well, I want to understand it, Lord. What can we expect from your presence? This presence that you're talking about, this most holy place that we can now come into because of your sacrifice, what's that all about? What does that mean for us? And God showed me this verse in Hebrews 9, 24. Perhaps you'd like to turn there. It says, Hebrews 9, 24. This is talking about Jesus going into the most holy place because of his sacrifice. It says, For the Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. That's, that's the presence of God in the most holy place. That's what we're talking about. And that word, presence, is a Greek word, prosopon. It's not particularly important what, what the word is, what, how you say it or anything like that, but it's this word, prosopon, and it is important what it means. Usually, it means face. So if you look at all the times it's used in the Bible, often you'll see it's the word face or it's the word appearance or it, it talks about how something uh, looks or how it relates to something in terms of where it is, that sort of thing. But then only a few times it means the presence of God. Interestingly, this word which means presence of God has its roots in lots of different words, because it's a Greek word, it comes from lots of Hebrew root words. And a lot of these root words, just think about who this might describe. But these words are spring, fountain, corner, person in front of or from before time, inside, Within. These are all the root words which lead to this prosopon, presence word. And I saw this and I saw Jesus. Jesus, the spring. Jesus, the fountain. Jesus, the cornerstone. Jesus, the person always in front of me and also from before time. Jesus, who is inside, who is within. Jesus Christ. Jesus the one who has gone into the presence of God 
And that word describes him. It describes Jesus himself. And that's very helpful for me because it means that if I want to dwell in the most holy place, if I want to dwell in the presence of God, it's all about one person. And that's not me. (laughs) It's Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. So we find that presence of God in Hebrews 9, 24. And then interestingly, the other times that we see it, there's only five more. And three of those, I'm going to call that a majority, talk about what we can experience in this presence of God, in this most holy place. And that's useful for us to know, isn't it? Because if we want to dwell in the most holy place, if Hebrews 10, 19 to 22 tells us, let us draw near into this most holy place, what do we expect from that? What does that actually mean for us? What can we expect from the most holy place, from dwelling in his presence? What can we expect when we take those words seriously, when we draw near with hearts that are expectant, full of faith? What can we expect when we say, yes, Lord, and no to the flesh? What can we expect when we follow in the example of Jesus who defeated all flesh and chose to be obedient to God and is now seated in his presence? What can we expect when we do that too? The first thing that we can expect, this is good, is gladness. We can expect gladness in the presence of the Lord, in the most holy place. So Acts 2 and verse 28, just turn there so you can see this for yourself. I'm not making this up. This is the word of God. This is what we can expect from the most holy place. Acts 2, verse 28. And so it says there, you have revealed the paths of life to me. You fill me with gladness in your presence. That's just really good, isn't it? He fills us with gladness in his presence. There's two more things that we can expect after this, and that's all I really want to finish with. But I just want to say about this now is, as I was looking into this, I really felt that the Lord said, what you can expect from my presence, I want to make that real for you. I want you to understand that this morning. I want to minister that over you. So that when his word says he'll fill us with gladness in his presence, we really know that to be true. We know that as our experience. And for anyone that doesn't feel glad this morning, that doesn't feel joyful, then this is the word of God for us. And so what I've asked for these three things is that one of the elders would each pray for us as a congregation about these three things. And so the first is that we can receive gladness in his presence. And Chris, as an elder of the church, as an authority of God, and as one who I know prays for us and cares about us, is going to pray that we would know that to be true. Father, we thank you that you've given us an oil of gladness. 
We thank you, Lord, that your gladness comes not only from your presence, Father, but it comes for purpose in our lives. And your word says that there's a fullness in that gladness, Lord. Father, we thank you that your fullness doesn't wax and wane, that your fullness is quality. It's qualitative. And so, Father, we, as we take your word, Father, by faith we declare it over each other right now. Father, I declare your word over this body that, Lord, there would be the oil of gladness that comes from your presence. I pray, Lord, that it would be full in each and every one of our hearts, Lord. Lord, I pray that it would be unrelenting. I pray, Lord, that it would be constant. That, Lord, in the days to come, whatever we face as individuals and together as your body, that your gladness, your joy will be our strength every single day. That, Lord, even though we may face trials, even though we will face opposition, that, Lord, our hearts will be full of gladness, that the oil of your gladness will be dripping over us, Lord. And I pray even more that that gladness, that that oil would affect all of those that we come into contact with, Lord. That we would be those, Lord, that comes into situations of despair, into situations of hopelessness, and the oil of gladness would be dripping from our fingers. That it would restore hope, that it would restore joy, even in those who don't know you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. The second reference we have to this prosopon, this presence of God in the most holy place that Jesus has achieved for us, is in Acts 3, 19. Would you like to turn there? Anyone feel blessed? Anyone feel glad? (laughs) Good. Acts 3 and verse 19 says, Therefore repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. There are seasons of refreshing for us in the most holy place. There's refreshing for us as we say no to the flesh, recognizing and appreciating that it's been defeated for us by Jesus, and we say yes to the Lord in obedience and submission to him. There are seasons of refreshing for us. And Richard, as an elder of the church, and as somebody who I know dearly loves us and wants the best for us, is going to pray that we would know a refreshing. Lord, thank you for the seasons. Thank you that we can call upon your name in your presence for refreshment. Thank you, Lord, Lord, that within 
the season of refreshment, there are springs of water, of living water that bring energy and strength to dry and barren land. Lord, thank you that although some of us may feel like we're in the dry and barren land, that you will bring through your presence the spring of water that will bring and turn this barren land into green fields and green pastures. Thank you, Lord, that in these green pastures there is comfort. We may lie down and know your goodness and your shepherding love to us. That in your refreshment, in these green fields and these green pastures, that we may know the food that you provide to us, Lord, that brings us strength. That the strength that will invigorate our bones and our muscles, that will bring strength where we are weak, that will give us perseverance where there is a lack of, of understanding or wanting to give up, Lord. That, Lord, we call upon your name through the book of James where it says that we sometimes have to go through these trials and we have to persevere so that your, your love and your, your kindness to us will complete its work so that we'll, we, we will be ready for anything and lacking no good thing. So, Lord, we pray right now that in this season of refreshment, where there is weakness, that you bring strength. Amen. We pray, Lord, where there is thirst, that you provide living water. Amen. We pray, Lord, that where there is hunger, you provide food. We pray, Lord, that where there is a wanting or a, or a spirit of wanting to give up in our circumstances and our situations, that, Lord, you strengthen us, you Help us to stand tall and help us to persevere so that we can come into that place of lacking nothing and having every good thing. So Lord, right now, your spirit of refreshment over every single one of us this morning, strengthen us, Lord. Make us whole. Give us everything we need. Help us to focus upon you in that, in that room of your presence. In Jesus' wonderful and mighty name. Amen. 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 The final thing that we can expect to receive from the presence of God, because the word tells us that we can, we find in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 10. So just turn there finally if you would. 2 Corinthians 2. And verse 10. It says there in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 10, If you forgive anyone, I do too. For what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, it is for you in the presence of Christ. This is a bit of a, an interesting one, but this is what God has for us this morning. This is what God is saying to us, is that there is forgiveness in his presence. There's forgiveness for us and where we feel we need help to forgive others 
that is for us in the presence of the Lord. I won't say anything more about that, but I'll just ask my dad if he would pray for us in line with that forgiveness in his presence. If I may just read the following verse as well. Now to whom you forgive anything, I do too. For what I have forgiven, I forgive. if I've forgiven anything, it is for you in the presence of Christ so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his intentions. And Lord, I want to pray that in our church there will be a pervading forgiveness of one another that we will not hold grudges we will keep no records of wrongs we will not take offense but we will forgive freely forgive one another we will not um, hang people out we'll forgive one another we're not unaware of the enemy's schemes to bring division and to cause strife and conflict and to pit one against another and we will not be outwitted by him. I want to pray, Lord, that as we come into your presence and know our own forgiveness and realize what you accomplished for us and find ourselves at one with you we will equally forgive others and contribute to an atmosphere, an experience of forgiveness of one another, of harmony together, so that nothing outwits us and we overcome every scheme of the evil one. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. There's so much going on at Living Rock Church and we'd love for you to be involved. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching. Visit www.livingrock.church or search for us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.